Vivo qualitative data analysis software empowers researchers around the world to discover rich insights within their qualitative data. This podcast gives you unique insights into the methods, the processes, and the passions of researchers. Welcome to the InVivo podcast, Between the Data. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Stacey Penna, the InVivo Product and Community Director, and today's podcast is with Dr. Corey Johnson, who collaborates with Dr. Diana Perry, who are both professors in the Department of Recreation and Leisure Studies at the University of Waterloo. We will be discussing the second edition of their book, Fostering Social Justice Through Qualitative Inquiry, a Methodological Guide, published by Rutledge. Uh, so welcome, Corey. Thanks for joining me today. I'm really excited for this discussion. Thanks, Stacy, for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Can you define what you mean by social justice paradigm? Yeah, I think it's important, right? As we have discussions about paradigms or worldviews, we know this language is taken up differently by different scholars. But when I am talking about a social justice paradigm, I'm talking more than just about positive social change. I think most researchers are interested in doing research for positive social change, but social justice is different than that. Social justice refers more broadly to this achievement of fairness, equity, emancipation, but it also has us and forces us to think about a global struggle for human rights recognition and dignity as well. And so social justice emphasizes this transformative process that changes society by taking up issues that are equated to fairness, equity and equality, the um, appropriate distribution of resources. And so within a social justice framework, We're also, as researchers, not distant from our participants, right? There are family members, there are lovers, there are friends, there are neighbors, there are people who share our lived experience or might be allies for that lived experience. So social justice really helps us work with a community instead of for that community, right? Sort of minimizing the discrepancy between, you know, our privileged positions that some of us occupy when we come to study with a group of people uh, makes sure that we keep those things in check. But it also uh, moves the community that we're doing the research with to the center of the discussion in ways that champion their understanding of their needs more than, you know, Corey coming in as an outsider trying to decide what that is. And even as an insider, if I'm studying my own community, I need to understand that as a, as a scholar, as someone who has um, access to education and resources, that I'm in a very different position than some of my participants might be. And so social justice as a paradigm um, helps us keep those things in mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's very important. That's great. How has social justice research evolved? Yeah, I think that evolution is really important, especially right now, as we are perhaps reminded more than usual, given uh, COVID and given the, I don't know, the visibility of systematic oppression that has been, you know, saturated in our news media, in the papers. And, you know, these issues have been 
present for a long time, but I think COVID and other things have allowed us to pull back the veil and see a little bit more of that structural inequality that perhaps we were, that was easier to ignore. And so I think that I have more students, more colleagues, more sort of like non-academic people asking me what what is it that we can do? And so I think now is the time for social justice scholars to make visible some of our ontological and epistemological assumptions. And obviously we're not going to use that sort of language to communicate outside, but like we, we need to sort of lay some of those things to bear so that people can start using the paradigm perhaps um, not only for increased research purposes, but, you know, even in relation to activism in the community. When I talk a little bit about collective memory work, in a few moments, I can sort of expound on how sometimes our research methodologies become more important than the research they generate, but they become pedagogical tools for educating people about oppression. And so I think these are the ways that social justice has evolved. And I think a lot of us just did it at the theory level. Mm -hmm. You know, we're just going to take this methodology and layer on the social justice theory whether it be feminism or critical race theory, and then we're going to undertake our research. But I think as the paradigm has evolved, it's demanded more of us. And as it demands more, the results are also, I think, better outcomes for the communities that we're trying to work with. That's interesting to me because social justice has become more mainstream, I think, like people, like you said, being interested in, and and you just mentioned critical race theory, where has been so, I think, misunderstood <laughs> out there. Yeah. And, and I don't know if you want to elaborate on that, but how, how have you had to, as a researcher, maybe sometimes um, make your work mainstream to help people, like people that aren't in academia, understand how your research can help impact people in their lives and in, in better ways. Yeah. So I think that's, um, I think that's a really important point, Stacy, in the sense that we are taking up issues of social justice in more ways and with more relevance, but with that comes some misunderstanding. And so there's always the flip side of mainstreaming, right? I even talk about it in my writing on LGBTQ folks, like we have, you know, this progressive sort of movement, but with that mainstreaming always comes some sort of distillation as if a community is myopic, as if there is not diversity within that community, diversity of being, diversity of thinking. And so I think as we move forward with social justice initiatives, whether those be research or sort of pragmatic, activist-oriented um, initiatives in the community, grassroots or otherwise, that we are sort of constantly reflecting on what the demands of a social justice paradigm calls us to do. And I think we've seen over the past 10 years, as more people have tested it, we've also seen failures, right, in those experiments of trying it out. And so we also have to have accountability and then we have to have support. That's probably a whole nother uh, podcast on the relationship <laughs> between the social justice yeah. paradigm and cancel culture and like yeah. all of those yeah. things. 
But nonetheless, I mean, I think there are things that uh, those of us who do this for a living or think about this a lot uh, should be paying really close attention to and starting to dialogue about. Because my worry is that we, we might, if not done so carefully and with support, we might turn people off to this, this type of work. And that's the opposite of what I think our goals are. Great. Th- thank you for answering that question. Yeah. This podcast is sponsored by QSR International, developers of Invivo and other software solutions for leading researchers and educators. If you're looking for a better way to manage literature, writing, and reference management, try using Citavi. It's the only all-in-one writing and reference management software. You can start to organize and write your paper as you review the literature, export your outline to Word to start writing, and collaborate with others. Citavi is available on desktop or via web, and you can give it a test run free for 30 days at citavi.com. What, you know, what data is typically collected for qualitative social justice research? I know, I know you could, there could be a ton of that too, but I, I, part of uh, doing the podcast is just helping people learn different ways they can do things. So. Yeah. I mean, I think we see, you know, the traditional data collection methods show up across most of the methodologies that we that we cover in the book. We see the interview, uh, we see the focus group, we see participant observation. Um, I say we see that a little bit more frequently because context is so important in qualitative research, historical context but then cultural context as well. We know that it means something very different to experience life as a woman in North America than it might in Afghanistan, right? Even in this very, at this, at, at this historical moment, if you will. And so like, we know that could change too, because what it meant to be a woman in the 90s in North America was probably closer to what it means to be a woman in Afghanistan today. So again, situating things historically and culturally are so important. I think that participant observation and case study too, because those demand those contextual features, perhaps get a little bit more affordance. And so, uh, and I've also started to notice that students are sort of coming back around to participant observation as something they're interested in practicing and learning. The interview has been sort of the creme de la creme and occupied the top spot of of qualitative data generation for quite some time. So I am personally excited to see that that larger contextual piece come back in. And so, yes, I think all sorts of data. You know, I I was trained at the University of Georgia under great scholars like Betty St. Pierre, who had me thinking about dream data. You know, I have scholars and my own students who are talking about studying experiments in daily living using affect theory. So their data looks so much different than a sort of traditional model that I would use in terms of data collection. But I think that's the exciting part of what we have ahead of us. You know, I'm hoping for at least another 20 years in in doing my research. And um, so revisions, I didn't think I'd ever want to do a second edition. I thought, oh, the labor of another book. And what what do I have new to say in, in five or seven years that could really warrant a revision? But once I got into the meat of it, I was like, wow, there's a lot that's new to say. And there's a lot of new perspectives and a lot of 
young scholars doing things differently. So now I'm sort of like, okay, I need a revision every five years <laughs> to keep me uh, to keep me current. But um, yeah, the question was about uh, data collection, and I think um, just like data analysis, right? Like there's we're returning to old models. We're inventing new ones. The theories are changing the way. I always joke to my students, I haven't coded since 1998. And they all <laughs> chuckle and laugh. But there's just so many different ways of doing analysis now that our selections don't have to be uh, so myopic. And not that I would say that there's anything wrong with coding. It's uh, very effective and has been around for a long time. But we're even coding in different ways mm -hmm. now, right? So, and talking about codes differently. And we have technology that has influenced the way that we do data collection and data analysis differently. That's great. What kind of um, ethical considerations are important with your research, you know, data collection or, or any anything else along the way? Yeah, I mean, ethics are of critical importance in all research, right? But I do think we have to think about it differently when we do qualitative research from a social justice paradigm. Um, we have to think about, you know, those key ways that power operates in relation to marginalization, discrimination, oppression. Uh, we have to think about our privilege. We have to think about the cultural things we do not understand and how ethically our work could produce harm. And that's the last, I mean, like, that's our mantra, right? Let's do no harm, especially when we're talking about groups that have already experienced trauma, who have already developed resilience. And here we come, perhaps with the best intentions, but not understanding how our work could do harm. So I think it's really important when you're not only moving through the ethics process to get approved at your institution or whatever, you know, uh, your research authority or approving body might be, but you've got to think beyond that. You've got to think about relationships. You've got to think about power. You've got to think about people's protection. You've got to, and I love that scholars, especially our post-qualitative and post-humanist scholars, are encouraging us to rethink some of the traditions that we have said are just sort of like, you know, standards. But we've done it without questioning, right? I, I did a study on drag kings and queens uh, about 10 years ago, and we had all, ex all sorts of exciting, even celebrities in that mix. And honestly, it was, it was the ethics review board that asked me why I would want to use pseudonyms when I was interviewing these very notable drag kings and queens who do this for a living and would actually be benefited by having their real drag names used. And I was like, this is what, you know, folks like, um, you know, Brian Cum and Alicia uh, Youngblood Jackson and other folks are encouraging us to rethink why is member checking important? Why are pseudonyms important? Why do we do things this way? And I hope the book captures some of that tension that I think we all have to work through and to come back to your original question, I don't think it's ever more important than when we're thinking through ethics and the treatment of humans that may or may not be in a position 
to advocate for themselves. And here we come with a sometimes uh, educational training or in research that conditions us to see that there's one way of doing things. And, you know, we also want to not have our research necessarily change the culture or make it more like the dominant culture just for the point of purposes of research, right? Yeah, yeah. No, That's no. why ethics is so important. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, de- yeah, definitely. Uh, that was that was really good um, explanation of that. So, I mean, is there any specific technology that you use? I mean, you just mentioned you're for the first time not going have to do transcriptions, but is there anything else you wanted to share with people that helps? Mm, I mean, I could get into that because my my own research agenda right now is focused on dating apps. So, I guess that's probably another podcast. But yeah, so like we've got to figure out how to use technology to to be most effective for us. Um, but we also have to understand that some of the communities we serve do not have the same relationship to technology that we do. And so we need to be mindful of that, not to take us back to ethics, but it certainly, uh, technology certainly plays a role in some of the ethics that we should think about. You know, for example, there could be easily an assumption that all the members of your community have access to the internet. And we can just look at some of the statistics that have come out over the Build Better America bill, uh, you know, in terms of access of rural communities to stable Internet and those sorts of things. So, you know, I I think, again, we can get um, really easily trapped in our technological privilege without thinking about not only how folks might not have access to, but not might not embrace technology, you know, communities where they privilege storytelling. I mean, like the digital doesn't translate in the same way that, you know, an indigenous person telling a story of community that might be hundreds of years old uh, and how that comes across can be lost within appropriate use of technology. So I, you know, again, I love to use technology, but I always like to constantly question how it's being adapted, adopted. So can you give a, you've, you've given some examples of your own research, but can you give us an example of one of the chapters in the book describing the methodology, the social justice issue that was tackled? Sure. I mean, I think one of the, I mean, they're all fascinating and they're all super important. Um, but one of the, uh, the chapters that we added in the second edition uh, was the digital methods chapter. Again, those methods have advanced significantly And we chose not to characterize it as a specific methodology because we think digital methods are making their way into the other methodologies in addition to sort of developing new methodologies within the digital framework. And, you know, a little self-plug, like uh, the student I'm about to talk about, his work and my work on dating apps, we've been working to develop a methodology called apnography. And so ethnography is really taking aspects of ethnography and digital methods and saying, okay, now what do we need to pay attention to given that we're in a digital landscape? And specifically in this case, one that is geosocial network. But again, another podcast for another day. <laughs> uh, the digital methods chapter, yeah, Luke Cousineau, uh, Dr. Luke Cousineau is a recent graduate. Just last year, he probably would have been my research assistant helping me get the book together. But now uh, he has successfully defended his very brilliant dissertation, which looks at men's rights groups 
on the digital platform of Reddit. And so incels, pickup artists, you know, we have major incidents happening in our country where when he was doing his dissertation work, uh, some of these men were running down people in, in the city of Toronto. Incels were, are shooting up you know, movie, like this is serious social justice work. And it's on a digital platform where there's a lot of anonymity. There's a lot of ethical cons. I mean, like, it's a complex topic. And I think that it's a great complex topic because it informs people about this men's rights activism happening on a digital platform and that digital platform happens to be the primary organization like location for these men and so to get in there and study that uh usually digital methods uh, has really sort of been an effective way to see the complexity of this group of people and how things like radicalization even um, women's participation in these men's rights communities can be documented. And so, of course, he has many publications and many other uh, outcomes associated with his dissertation research. But what I love about this chapter in the book is that, one, it's going to give students the most like contemporary information on digital methods. He literally defended in July. So it's going to be really relevant. But at the same time, it's going to educate everyone about this subject matter they might not know a lot about that has real important social implications, I think, for all of us, no matter what field you're in. So it, that chapter sticks out to me for a variety of reasons. One, I'm proud of my student. Two, he's taking us in different directions. Three, it tackles on the digitality that all of us are eager to sort of examine and how it relates to our own work. And it's just damn interesting and super important. Yeah, definitely, definitely very interesting. We'll take a quick break from the episode. To access Dr. Johnson's and Dr. Perry's second edition, please go to the Rutledge website to find Fostering Social Justice Through Qualitative Inquiry, a methodological guide. What is critical to the future of the social justice paradigm? Yeah, I think this is where we start to end up at the end of the book, like what's necessary to move us all forward. So, you know, I think we cover a couple of things. One, that we need deep interdisciplinary collaboration. And when I say that, I, I think about the academy first because that's where we talk about it. But there is so much interdisciplinariness in social life. And I think that we have to also push our ways of thinking culturally beyond our discipline space, our comfort zones, if you will. We've got to get out onto those learning edges. And I think that interdisciplinary collaboration can help us do that. I also think we've already covered a lot of this. We have to learn to write differently. I think we have to learn to write in a compelling fashion. My students uh, would tell you that uh, they're my, one of my biggest pet peeves is you know, the opening of a paper. And they all just sound so much the same. Something, something, so much little research has been done in this area, and now I'm going to do it. Here we go. 
And it's no wonder that people don't want to read and access our work. Instead, like, how can you use that first paragraph to make me want to read your paper more than any other? And sure, I might skip the literature review. I might skim the methodology and I might jump right to the conclusion or to the uh, findings and conclusions. But like, I want to get you in there. And so like forcing, I, I, forcing is not the right word, but encouraging <laughs> my students to be more compelling. And then in my role as editor and associate editor and reviewer of other items, also sort of um, challenging my colleagues to do that in, in the same way. I think more people would read our work if we just worked on that first paragraph. So again, I think that, you know, the way we write and represent other people's lived experience is super important. We've also got to do the hard work of engaging reflexivity uh, for ourselves. And that's really tough. And it, I'm not sure that it ever gets easier. Uh, I've been doing social justice research for a long time, and yet I've had to pause and sort of revisit some of my own assumptions, my bias, especially as a white cis. I mean, like most of my identities are privileged. And mm -hmm. here I like to characterize myself as a social justice scholar. What I would say about that is that understanding my own privilege and documenting that and the tensions therein are super important, even when it hurts, even when it's painful. Even when my, you know, my colleagues of color have to remind me to quiet down, perhaps it's not my space to write, perhaps, you know, and, and same thing, like as a, as a gay man who works in the LGBTQ community, um, you know, as a man, I've had a lot of privilege. And so when I'm at trying to be a good ally for my trans colleagues or my lesbian colleagues, like, you know, trying to assess my own privilege, my own access to dominance, my own connection to resources. And so I guess I'll end in terms of like your question with that. If we're going to be committed social justice scholars, once we attend to those other things, interdisciplinary, you know, writing more effectively, and then uh, critiquing the self, you know, we also have to start thinking about, are we willing to move our own resources to the communities and groups that need them? Mm -hmm. You know, am I willing to give up money? Am mm -hmm. I willing to give up power? Am I willing to give up privilege? And these are the questions that I sort of encourage my students to think through in relation to their own social justice qualitative research is, you know, at the end of the day, if your community asks you, uh, uh, asks you for it, are you going to give it even if it means sacrificing some of your own power, notoriety, privilege? And if the answer is no, can you really call yourself an ally today? And if you can't, that is entirely okay. I would rather you embrace the shortcomings and the things that you need to work on to become a good ally than to just adopt that you know, subjectivity or that positionality and embrace it unquestioned. I think we all have work to do. Um, and so I guess uh, at the end of the day, I hope that People see their social justice research not coming to a conclusion, but coming to a place that then encourages their own exploration in that transformational change we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, no, that's that's a uh, uh, very impactful. Thank you. And yeah. uh, so, so my last question is: um, What's one piece of advice you would give a researcher conducting social justice research through qualitative inquiry? 
Uh, do what you're passionate about. Do what is meaningful. I was at a uh, I was at a party uh, just last Friday, where one of my colleagues was celebrating all of her thesis students, um, and you know they had all done their defenses, and and so I had been invited because I had been on a few of the committees as a as a dissertation member, and uh, just stumbled into a conversation with a, a new faculty member. She had defended her dissertation not maybe two years ago, and 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 said the same thing. You know, what's one piece of advice you would offer me as I move through my career? And I said, you know, do the work that's passionate, do the work that's meaningful. It won't always be easy. And you've got to build the support systems and the connections to the community that is going to help you move through that transformation process. But honestly, at the end of the day, I think if you've done work that's important to you, you don't get tenure, but you get another job at a place that values what you do more. That's awesome. Because, it, you know, the work is what's going to feed you and feed your soul. And so if you continue to follow that path, and you can't always, sometimes you're diverted or, you know, um, you need to keep that job. So you have to do some things maybe that are not your passion project. But make sure you always have one in the, in the mix so that when you're exhausted by other things, you can turn your attention to that thing that really sustains you. And in a dissertation project especially, I think that's super important. And we have to also remember that, um, you know, we can become the, the smartest person on a subject matter and that our committee members and our own professors who will eventually be our colleagues will benefit from that hard work and that labor. And then we become, expert is not the word I want, but we, we've got a lot of content knowledge that we can offer other people. And so as someone who has been in a position where most of my professors have become my good colleagues. I, I got to return to the place I did my PhD and work for 10 years. So having seen that evolution, I just know that staying committed to your passion projects can, can pay off uh, long term. And I think that's good advice really for anyone. So I just want to, again, thank uh, Corey for talking with us and thanks to those tuning in. Uh, listeners, if you've enjoyed learning more about fostering social justice through qualitative inquiry from this episode, we'd appreciate your support by rating and subscribing to the NVivo podcast. This helps us to share these amazing narratives with the research community. So thank you, Corey. Oh, thanks for having me, Stacey. It's been great. Thank you for joining us for Between the Data. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more about NVivo podcasts and community events, please visit go.invivobyqsr.com slash community or email me, Stacy Penna, at s.penna, P-E-N-N-A, at qsrinternational.com.